It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports commerce editor. With Rick Boring, as always, our thanks last week to Jed Demusi. He'll join us on a podcast again down the road. But we've got a lot of stuff to get to. I mean, there's no sports being played, but there's no lack of sports news to talk about. And, of course, I'm sure there's some just crazy questions for me at the end that I'll have to muddle my way through and, and make a fool of myself as I always do. Rick, how are we doing still with the social distancing? I'm I'm doing well. I, I can't complain over here. Um, the new thing for me is little pints of ice cream. I've been hoarding random flavors of ice cream each time we go out uh, to Kroger's or wherever. And uh, I'm not really an ice cream guy. I just kind of got on a random kick, realized there are a lot of new ice cream flavors I've never had before, and so I'm uh, diving into them. You seem to be a, just a complete vanilla kind of guy to me. Is that right? No, not at all. Not, oh. I'm not. Here's the thing. Like, I'm a, I get my calories, which I get plenty of, through wings and beer, sometimes a pizza, um, but I'm not really a sweets guy and really not an ice cream guy, so this is all new to me. I'm not a vanilla guy. What intrigued me was uh, peanut butter and jelly ice cream was the first thing I saw. And I was like, what the hell is that? So I tried it. Yeah, it was good. I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then uh, the next thing that I've really enjoyed is cinnamon toast crunch ice cream. Ooh, oh. Tastes exactly like the cereal, but just in a cold form. It's great. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a big sweets guy either, but I am a huge ice cream guy. I, I, I've, I'm oh, what's Swiss, your top ice cream? Swiss chocolate almond for sure. Swiss chocolate almond? I've yeah. never even heard Ooh. of it. Mm. Man, that that that's the bomb. I'm not gonna, that that and chocolate chip. Those, put it those, on the those, list. Those two. Those two. Put them put them down on the list for for sure. I will tell you, it's funny. Um, this was three weeks ago. I, I, some guys I coach with, we we got ourselves into a, a, a kind of a weekly poker game online, and um, the day before we were playing our first, going to play our first game, one of our coaches sent out a panicked text message to all of us about. Hey, it sounds like they may be shutting down liquor stores. You guys need to go buy as much booze as possible. So of course we all did. And then came the text message from him last night. He says, this is three weeks ago, mind you, this initially went out. We all made our booze run, right? He says, anybody still have the hundreds of dollars of booze they still bought? And surprisingly, I was probably the, the, the one on the list with the most. I have one bottle of wine, one beer. Somehow I bought a 30-pack of beer and I have one beer and I have a full uh, quart of vodka left. So I feel, I feel like maybe I'm not the lush of the group after all, Rick. That is an upset for one. It is an upset. I was um, I was I was surprised by that. Two. How did how did uh, his intel work out for you guys? Well, did his, he turned his, out to be right. Yes. No. His, he turned out to be wrong. But I guess yeah, they've exactly. been talking. His his uncle in law, if, if you will, his uncle in law is the mayor of uh, of Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, apparently, and supposedly he was on a conference call and. Somehow they, the, 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 I guess that subject was broached by the governor at, at the time, um, and I think that was at the point where he started to have the hey, you can only put one person down in island grocery stores, but maybe that had been talked about. So I give credit. I mean, it wasn't like we weren't ever going to buy it or drink it. It just made us buy it and drink it quicker than probably we should have. Yeah, yeah. I think he just did the uh, alcohol industry around the greater Cincinnati area solid right there by yeah, getting I, you guys to spend up front. I have a friend that actually he's a he, he does he's a liquor salesman and, and his clients are stores and I, I you know when this first hit I worried for him I said man what, what are you gonna do he said well I don't sell to, uh, to to restaurants I sell to stores he goes and I'm slammed and he's still yeah. slammed so yeah well I have I have a good friend um who she's pregnant right now actually and she's been working nonstop resupplying her vendors which are like you know Kroger's and stores like right. that and 
she she's already maxed out all of her bonuses for for the quarter. Like she, that's what he's done. He's done the same thing. He's she can't even. Thing, yeah, yeah. She's just doing it to keep her clients happy at this point. But there's really no reason for her to be working still like this. That's that's crazy. We're all we're all boozers. But then again, if you think about it, nobody's going to a bar to booze. You're just doing it at home now. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, we definitely have an alcohol problem in this country, no but question. that no being question. said, you're right. It, it, I don't think it's a, a, a lot more consumption. I just think instead of going to bars every weekend, people are just staying in and drinking. Now, now lastly, before we go, we got a myriad of topics to get to. Are, are you getting any exercise? Are you getting at least a walk every few days in? I actually, believe it or not, because the golden retrievers here, I have been walking the dog a ton. Like I think I've been over walking the dog. There's times where the dog looks at us like, again, are are we done? (laughs) How bored are you? Yeah. So no, I think, I think we're okay on the walks. All right. Good deal. I just, I could probably do something other than walking, but that's not, not too bad. I'm not a, I'm I'm not a big workout guy. I get it in usually when I'm, when I'm coaching, I'll get in drills and that gets me enough over the winter time. And I've maintained a pretty steady weight for a long time. So I feel, but yeah, I'm I'm, the walk a day. You get a good walk around my neighborhood. It's about a mile and a half. It's a, it's a pretty good walk to get in and um, just to get outside on occasion, man. It just, it, it, it's, I, I went and drove yesterday. I had to go get a, get a battery for my car and it just felt weird. I haven't driven a car in probably two weeks. Oh, it's how nice is it to just turn on like the radio and, and <laughs> yes, drive for 30 yes. minutes and listen to, to something. I, no, I, I did miss that. That's a, did, one of those yeah. small things that like you don't think about every day. Like you get annoyed with traffic and everything, but then when you don't do it for a while, you're like, man, well, the, wor- the worst this. part was I, I had to angle over to the right to kind of make a – to you get onto a ramp to where Please I, I, I tell I me you got into a road rage incident I, while I, no one was out on the road. No, I, this was completely my fault. I did it, and a guy kind of raced up behind me as I was doing it, and it dawned on me. I'm like, I didn't even put my signal on to get over because I didn't even think about it. I just kind of just aimlessly wandered over. And I thought, man, I haven't driven in a while. I'm not used to doing this. What is this turn signal thing they talk about? Now you're one of those jackasses that you're typically ranting on here mm-hmm. about not using the turn signal no question. and totally no question. oblivious. Great. I, I was waiting for it, except it was an Ethel. I don't think Ethel was going to – she wanted any part of me, so I was good with that. Well, you're a badass yeah. taking down Ethel. All right, let's get into it, Skinny. BetOnlineAG.com has released spreads for every NFL game this season. It's only one sportsbook's lines, but if it's any indication, Vegas isn't too high on the Bengals heading into the 2020 season. Cincinnati's only favored in one game against – Cincinnati is only favored in one game. That's against the Jaguars. They're an underdog in every other game except for their home game against the Giants, which is a pick Do you think betonlineag.com is underselling the Bengals? And I, I saw that, obviously, and that, that, that just that floored me because it, it, it hits you that nobody thinks this team, despite all the moves, despite the fact that, that they're going to probably get Joe Burrow, despite the fact they're going to get A.J. Green back, Vegas usually isn't wrong a lot of times, right? Um, and favored in one game. I, look, I could see them being a dog in every road game off the bat. Obviously, this is going to be fluid as the season goes along, as we all know. But they're doing it now to generate interest, conversation, um, people to go to their website, Bet Online AG. And I use them a lot for stories because they, they do send out interesting things like this where, at the very least, it's interesting. But, man, it makes you think that, that what is it, five, five-and-a-half win total we talked about, the over-under, will they go over or under it? makes you think like, man, they're going to struggle to get to what they got to last year, which was two wins. I, I, I do think this is a better team, but man, that, that just, that stunned me because the Giants stink and it'd only be a pick them at home right now against them. That stuns me. Yeah. That line surprises me a little bit, but also like, I think when people see this, they think, oh, they're predicting the Bengals to go one in 14 or one in 15. And that's not really the case, right? Because when you're setting betting lines, it's you're, it's each individual game in a vacuum. So like then when you start thinking about it, it's like, okay, well, how many games should the Bengals actually be favored to win? Like I acknowledge the fact that they'll probably win six or more games, 
but picking ahead of time before we've seen anything, how many should they actually be favored to win right now? And you start going down the list and it's like, okay, maybe against the Dolphins, maybe against the Redskins are two that, that, that they're, you know, they were underdogs in here yes. according to this website that maybe I might, I might differ an opinion on. Um, you know, the Jaguars game, they are favored to win at home. The Giants game is a pick on which I would have I had them favored to win. But outside of that, I mean, like, Cowboys at Cincinnati, I'll take the Cowboys in that one. Browns at Cincinnati, mm, maybe that's sort but, of a pick to me, or, or I lean towards the Browns. And then Steelers, Chargers, Titans, I, I'm taking the Bengals as an underdog in all those games. But the thing is, when you see this – when you're a dog in 14 games, that means you have to win, win that outright to, 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 I mean, you don't have to win that outright to cover. It means basically they are picking them to go one fourteen and one in theory. I mean, for teams that are favored in some games, like Baltimore's favored all 16 games. We know they're not going 16 and O and we know they're not going to cover all those for the Bengals. They could still lose some of these games or dogs in and cover, but still considered losing. I mean, to be favored in only one game tells me they don't think very much of them at all. Well, yeah, I, I think it's very clear that they don't think much of them. But again, like, I mean, I'm, I guarantee you, Bet Online AG's win total for the Bengals isn't one or one and a half. Right? No, it's, it's probably, probably like four and a half, five. five yeah, right. So, so they clearly expect them to win more games. But in the vacuum, when you have to set the line for each individual game, it's like, yeah, the Bengals will outperform expectations a few times this year. But when you lay the, the actual schedule out, I, I don't know if I agree with them that they're only favored to win one, but. I struggle to get past three. No, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, when you look at it in, in the stark reality of it is Baltimore's a better team. Cleveland's a better team. Houston's a better team. Indy's a better team. Miami's probably not, which surprises me that the Dolphins would be a three-and-a-half-point favorite. Um, Philly's clearly a better team. Pittsburgh's a better team. Washington's probably not, as you mentioned. And then when you flip them back around for the games they've got at home, um, the three division rivals we can agree are on paper. Dallas is. Uh, the Chargers, eh, maybe, eh, maybe that's not. A, that's what I said, Chargers, but that's probably a toss-up. Yeah, and, that, and it's only a one-and-a-half-point spread as it is right now, so that's close. The Giants probably aren't. That's why it's a pick em. I mean, and the, and the Titans probably are. I mean, in theory, the schedule sucks. I mean, that's, that's the hard part is you, you've played some, you're playing some teams that have gotten themselves a whole lot better in this offseason. And, of course, you're hoping you got a lot better too. Yeah, and, and obviously, I mean, I, I don't know that they can really – take Joe Burrow into account or how that changes their calculus when it comes to setting these lines um, because this is going on before the draft but even still I don't know that having Joe Burrow as a rookie quarterback starting you know year one changes the predicted outcome for a lot of these games no probably not I imagine you know this is the way it's going to be for Vegas and honestly when you look at it I, I feel like you might be able to get some good value in a couple of these individual games if the Bengals are really going to be picked to be an underdog in some of them. Like, I mean, for instance, the Redskins won. If they're an underdog in that game, I'm betting the Bengals. I can tell you that right now. Right, right, right. You're going to look for some value in those lines. But as you look at some of those lines, I don't find much value in it, in it right now, that's for sure. No, I, I, it, it's funny because you see the headline come out, you see the tweet with that, you know, Bengals favored in one game or whatever, and you're like, what? That seems ridiculous. And then you start thinking, and it's like, huh? I don't know that I would pick them to win a whole lot more than that in terms of setting a line either. So um, it, it's it's something interesting to talk about at least at this point of the season when there's nothing else to to talk about. So and there may be no season at all anyway. So nah, there you go. That's right. One of the big Bengals storylines heading into the 2020 season is the status of star running back Joe Mixon. Mixon has been the most productive player on offense for the Bengals over the last few seasons, and he's in the final year of his contract. 
It was reported this week that he's prepared to hold out if he and the Bengals can't come to a long-term deal. A wrench was also thrown into those negotiations on Monday when the Carolina Panthers signed Christian McCaffrey to a four-year extension worth $16 million per year, making him the NFL's highest-paid running back. Skinny, what does Christian McCaffrey's new deal mean for Joe Mixon? Uh, it means that it, it probably lends him towards more holding out. I, I think we've talked about this before. I, I thought that should have been a priority of the Bengals in this offseason is to get something done before anything else hit the fan um, because of the potential. I don't think Joe will hold out. Um, I do think if there had been OTAs, which I think we're pretty clear now we're not going to have, um, that he wouldn't have shown up for those without an extension. Uh, it's still probably debatable how much of training camp he opts to participate in if he doesn't have an extension. And then I, I, I said this too, Rick, and, and you, you heard it. It's kind of like the same situation with A.J. Green last year. Look, A.J. had a legit injury. We all can understand that because he had surgery to repair that injury. There's no doubt in my mind A.J. Green could have come back probably at the midway point if he hadn't been in the final year of a contract and decided I'm going to make a business decision on an 0-8 team and, and not threaten this any further and um, try to get myself another deal based on that. And I think that's unfortunately what happens with Joe. I mean, Joe saw that. And now the first time Joe has an owie. And look, as a running back, for goodness sakes, as much punishment as – I mean, he loves contact. He's, gonna, he's going to hurt at some point. Now, whether he gets hurt is another – you know what I'm talking about, another thing. It's, it's the whole you know, pain versus pain tolerance. But the first time he gets an owie – I can see him understandably making a business decision, and maybe that comes in camp where he twists an ankle one day and says, I'm, not, I'm just not ready, guys. And That's the risk you run now, and, and I get it from both sides because the running back position, um, and we'll get to McCaffrey in a second, the running back position is really not valued a ton in the NFL, and some teams that do, I think, overvalue it. I think for Carolina, they've overvalued Christian McCaffrey, as good of a player as he is. Um, and he does a lot of things that other running backs can't do, but is that worth the, the, the money that they overpaid him for? Um, so, so I get teams that are reticent to, to give those extensions or to re-sign a guy to a second contract, but I also can see it from Joe Mixon's standpoint of, it's a business decision for me too, and I'm not going to risk my career for your season. I, I'm just not going to do it when, when look, I'll, people see what I can do when I'm healthy, and I'm still a young guy. And I'm going to get paid by somebody. If it's not by you, it's by somebody else. And the unfortunate part of what Christian McCaffrey's contract now has done is it took what looked like the dwindling running back market. It looked like Le'Veon Bell had screwed it up for everybody the way he did things. Well, and, and Todd Gurley just got and Todd Gurley, off right, a, correct. an enormous contract. Correct. Um, and, and so I think that, that what McCaffrey's deal has now done is it swung it back to guys like Joe that say, he's getting paid. How about I get paid? Yeah, this was really kind of a shift in where everything was trending for the running back market because the few things you mentioned there, it really kind of felt like this was the offseason and it had been trending this way for a few years, but this was the offseason where the, the bottom just finally fell out for running backs and they really had very little value, especially if they were over the age of 24, 25, and they, they just weren't looking to get those big extensions anymore. And then enter the Panthers and Christian McCaffrey. Now, this is a little bit different because the Panthers did it a year early. You know, they didn't wait till that final year. He still had two years left on his contract. They extended him for four more, so they've got him for six years here. Now, you can certainly argue about the merits and how smart it is to lock up a running back for six years. I mean, I don't know if any running back. Yeah, and I didn't look at the structure of it either, Rick, because sometimes, um, and, and I don't know if we talked about this last week or not, but... Um, and I might have talked about it on a radio show instead, but uh, DJ Reader's contract 
is really backloaded um, from a base salary standpoint. He's got a bunch of guarantees up front. He doesn't have a huge uh, base salary this season. So it's actually, for the 2020 salary cap, it's really not an awful hit for the Bengals for DJ. It really isn't an awful hit in the first two years. You got him for four, and then you can make a decision the last two. And, in fact, I think the last year – uh, the only dead money on his on on the cap would be his prorated bonus, and they'd actually save eight or ten or twelve million dollars. So that could be the case with McCaffrey's deal too. I mean, you can do these structurally differently, but the bottom line is, he's still getting a good chunk of change. Well, yeah, and but it is when you when you average it out over six years, all of a sudden you factor in what the the current deal is right. for and the option year next year. All of a sudden, you know, you're talking more about twelve and a half million dollars right. per year, which still a lot of money for running back. But when you've got maybe the most versatile, not maybe, definitely the most versatile running back in the NFL and, and one of the most talented in Christian McCaffrey, he helps you in the passing game more than a lot of other running backs do. I think there is an argument to be made that it's not a bad deal for the Panthers. At the same time, it, I mean, it really changes things for the running back market, and I wouldn't advise most teams signing any running back to this type of money. Obviously, Joe Mixon is uh, 24 he's you know less mile less mileage on way less mileage on the tires than Christian McCaffrey yeah that's true but at the same time it, like man I just don't I don't do you think the Bengals can sign him to a big contract I mean let, we know he's going to be asking for something in the neighborhood of top three running back money he's not going to settle for less than that so can the Bengals afford something like that I thought they could afford 32 mil over four years and probably half of that in guarantees. Um, I just, I, I don't that, see that getting it done. Uh, I, yeah. I don't see it getting it done now. I, I, in fact, I think I even wrote that about a month or so ago that I thought that that could I mean, that's happen. Ha- that's half of been, uh, essentially yes. what he got. Yes. Correct. And I, I thought that sounded fair at the time. Um, I, now, yeah, now I don't, I don't know if the Joe Mixon camp takes a, a deal like that. And, and, and and look, the Bengals don't have any money right now. I mean, they, they've got to get rid of Andy Dalton just to kind of make the the dollars work. And so they've they've set a little bit aside for Joe. They've probably set a little bit aside for for AJ Green. And and they could, if they sign AJ to a to a longer term deal of maybe a three year deal, you can restructure some of his salary cap money this year. He's due about eighteen mil franchise tag, but you could probably whittle that down to thirteen to fifteen towards the cap and save a little bit. Um, there as well. But um, look, they signed a bunch of guys and, and I, I know everybody wants to think there's, there's infinite money, but there is a cap. And there's a certain amount you can spend. So um, I, I know they've set aside some money for, for Joe Mixon. I know they've, they've, they've talked about um, trying to get something done with him. But when you see the 64 mil, it puts you in a different stratosphere. And I, I look, I get their point and I get Joe's point and, and I could see Joe I don't see Joe holding out, like I said. I don't think he's going to cut his nose off to spite his face, but I can also see him playing this the exact same way A.J. Green played it last year. Yeah, I think that's right. And, I mean, it's, this has always been a part of the NFL negotiations and, and guys holding out for training camp and stuff like that. But we are increasingly getting to a point across all sports as players realize they, they hold more leverage across the board where – it just feels like you're never going to be able to get a talented player to play out his contract anymore. Right. You know, right. I mean, it feels like that's really where we're headed in sports. And I don't know what you do to fix it. I don't know if it's something you should fix. Like, I agree with the players having a leverage and doing what they have the ability to do. But it seems like there might be something you need to figure out in the next CBA to where it eliminates this from happening so often, or at least the incentive, yeah, because it, this, this is happening way too often. It's becoming tough to, to watch from a fan perspective. No, and there's, there's no doubt. And it goes back to, because it's such a cold business that 
I'll use AJ again as an example. I mean, there's the possibility that the Bengals after the injury last year and him not playing could have said, good luck to you on the open market, go find something better. Um, and so the player has to look out for himself too. And, and that's the part that, that makes it very difficult. Whether in that last year of the deal, the free agency deal, a major injury takes you off the market, Rick, right? I mean, it suddenly right. now, instead of you thinking you're getting your payday, you just blew your knee out and you become very devalued. You're going to make less. So they, that's the weighing that has to take place. And a lot of times for players, it's, I'm not even going to weigh that. I'm just going to, I'm going to, if I got the least bit alley on me, I ain't playing. Um, I don't care where we are as, as a team. Um, I'm going to make my own business decision. I don't know if there is a set answer for that. I think the only thing it is, is if, is if this pandemic does do some some bad things financially to clubs, I think you'll then see contracts get really devalued and get sent way down the list. And the, when the money's not as big, perhaps you don't have this issue. But with the money being so big right now, both sides are making the business decision. And that's the part that fans, I think, you, 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 don't, you don't get a lot of times. And I, and I feel bad for fans because you want the player um, and you, you want him on your team and you're mad at him because he's holding out, and you're mad at the team for not paying him, and yet neither one are really wrong. They're both doing what's best for them. Right, but it, but when you're emotionally invested and you want to root for a guy and a team, it sucks for them to be going through those types of situations. So I totally get the fan perspective on this. Uh, and you maybe pointed out the real issue here is probably the concession from the team side is that they have to give more guarantee. You right. know, more guaranteed money, more guaranteed contracts to alleviate this problem. And they're probably not going to be willing to do that because while they find themselves in some tough situations with their star players, they're probably cutting far more guys who don't pan out and saving a lot of money on the back end there. So, uh, you know, there probably really is no solution to this issue. We're probably going to continue to trend down this route. I, th- I think we are. Speaking on Wednesday morning's Get Up, ESPN draft analyst Mel Kuyper finally had enough of the national media's narrative surrounding Joe Burrow and the Bengals. Kuyper went off saying that he was disgusted by all the Bengals hate. Kuyper referenced the success of Ken Anderson and Boomer Esiason in the 80s before stating, quote, fast forward to 2011 and 2015. That's not 100 years ago, guys. They had five straight winning seasons, five straight playoff appearances, should have beaten Pittsburgh, but a penalty late cost them that opportunity. They've had 11 and 12 win seasons. So this notion that Joe Burrow is going to a place that's never won, never had success, never had a quarterback do anything is utterly ridiculous. Joe Burrow will be fine. The Bengals will be fine. Come on. What did you think of Mel Kuyper's rant about the Bengals and Joe Burrow? I mean, he is right. If you think about it, it's not like the Bengals have cycled through quarterbacks, right? I mean, really, since 2003, you've had yeah, two they did main the starters. Yeah, well, since and 2003, you've had two main starters. You've had Carson Palmer and Andy Dalton. You've had a couple of the Ryan Fitzpatrick one year because of injury. Uh, the one year with John Kitten is the, is the bridge to Carson Palmer before Carson. But really, since Carson took over in 04, rather, because he was drafted in 03 and, and didn't play because John played. But since 04, you've had two guys basically be your starting quarterback. That's a pretty good run, and it's not because they were chopped liver. Carson Palmer took them to a playoff. Andy took them to, to, to four playoffs and, and would have been five if he hadn't gotten hurt, and A.J. McCarron played in his place briefly. But the quarterback position for the Bengals has been a pretty damn stable position for, for a very good reason. They did a good job identifying talent, and they put some guys around it. The key here is Joe is in kind of that vein of when Andy took over and kind of when Carson took over. You're in that transitional period, and it's up to the team to put parts around them I think you saw this offseason. They tried to take some steps on the other side of the football with the hopes of 
getting, you know, an offensive lineman in free agency, getting a guy last year who was a first-round pick, getting an all-pro wide receiver and A.J. Green back, that there are enough parts around this kid. I'm with Mel on this. I Look, there are a lot of narratives about the Bengals. I, I, I don't agree with a lot of the ways they, they go about their business. I don't think they've done a very good job drafting of late, and that's been a problem. But um, th- this isn't like it's been a franchise that's never won anything. And, and it's, it, you know, it, it sucks that it's going on five straight losing seasons probably, um, and it's up to them to dig their way out of it. But, yeah, the narrative for quarterbacks hasn't been you go there and you die. Carson Palmer thrived. Uh, Andy Dalton thrived, and they made a lot of money doing that both of them did so and that's the other part Bengals will take care of you you know a lot of fans I'm going to guarantee you didn't want Andy Dalton to get another contract right and yet they paid Andy (laughs) so they're going to take care of you too yeah I mean during the 90s the Brown family was you know were basically slumlords I mean in in terms of how they ran the franchise it was broken down they didn't put any money back into it to fix the things that need to be fixed from a fan perspective, from the a player perspective, the place was just a joke. It was completely broken down. There wasn't anything being invested as we got into the two thousands and, you know, you got sort of that 2004, five, six, when things started going right, a lot of that had changed by that point. Now were things perfect. Are the Bengals one of the class organizations of the no, NFL? Absolutely of not, course right. not. Is it anyone's first choice to end up? No, definitely not. But if you're talking about the losing franchises and the type of teams that are going to be drafting number one overall, you can end up in a lot worse situations than Cincinnati, especially with the current roster that they have in place. Like, granted, last year was a terrible, terrible season, but I think everyone will allow that not having A.J. Green is a big factor. Like, not the, the offensive line situation, the way it shook, shook down with your first round pick overall getting injured and some of the other things you had with guys quitting before the year started essentially um it puts you in in a really tough spot now there's a lot of rebuilding that needed to take place with this roster but it wasn't that far removed from being a team that everyone expected to compete in this division so i, I mean I, I agree this notion that like Joe Burrow is going to a black hole and and just a death sentence for his career is absolutely absurd. At the same time, like Mel might have been a, a little more bullish on the Bengals franchise and how successful it's been than, right. than I would have. No, I, I I agree with that part. But I, yeah, the national narrative of it, like I, like you said, and we we talked about quarterbacks get taken care of here. Okay, they're going to take care of you. And I know it's not always about money. You want to win. Well, Carson Palmer won. Did he win as much as we would have liked? No. And did it end poorly? Absolutely. Was Andy Dalton, you know, Tom Brady? No, but if you'd have told me when they drafted Andy Dalton that he'd take them to five playoff appearances, I'd have said, sign me up. I mean, I think anybody would have said, sign me up for that. Well, and I mean, right now, right now, if I can tell you in the next 10 years, Joe Burrow is going to take the Bengals to five playoffs. No more, no less. He's going to take them to five playoffs. Will you sign up for it? Uh, yeah, I would. Okay, but I, yeah. And I think the, the thing with Andy Dalton is if you look back and you put Joe Burrow in the same situation that Andy Dalton had, you, you give him everything that you gave Andy Dalton, do you not think the Bengals are going to be in a really good spot? You would hope. Andy unless, Dalton, unless, unless, unless Joe Burrow stinks, right? I mean, so that then it falls on, is Joe Burrow any good or not? So, yeah. Andy Dalton is not the most talented guy in the world. He, he's underrated here in Cincinnati for certain. He's had a very solid career for an NFL quarterback. But the guy is not the most talented in the world. So, like, this idea that, that the Bengals have killed Andy Dalton's career or something is just insane. To me, when you look at the, from a quarterback perspective, 
the one position where you feel like they've kind of really done a lot to help that guy out is Andy Dalton. Like, he, he wasn't the most talented. They've done everything they can to give him weapons, whether it be drafting a million tight ends and receivers and running backs to put more weapons around him, or granted, the offensive line hasn't gone the way they thought, but it hasn't been for a lack of drafting guys. They have certainly tried at that position to find early draft choices uh, that just didn't quite work out. So I, I, I do think this narrative, and, and it's just weird to me that there has been such this focus. First it was on that Bur- Burrow didn't want to go to the Bengals, and then now it's becoming that um, since he is going to the Bengals, like it's been the Bengals may trade him or that he, he again, that the Bengals are going to ruin him. It's been a very weird process to watch this play out in the national media. I still think it's because there's no argument to who should go number one right. overall. That, that, so that, to, that's the exact. That's the exact thing. That, yeah, I think they have to manufacture something. Correct. Correct. All right, Skinny. Uh, last topic on the Bengals here. Former cornerback Pac-Man Jones joined Matt Barnes and Stephen Jackson via video conference for an interview on their Showtime program, All the Smoke. He said during the interview that he is bipolar but didn't want to share that previously so it wouldn't interfere with anything else. Jones added that he refused to take medicine for his issues while he was playing because he didn't want it to affect his play. He also admitted to smoking weed before every game he played and said he loves Cincinnati and calls it his home. Skinny, what were your takeaways on the Pac-Man Jones interview? Yeah, I, I, it's funny. They sent me a, 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 a few clips of that and asked if I wanted to put it on the website. And usually for that stuff, you know, I get all these requests from different people all the time for, hey, you want to interview Jimmy Johnson or Jackie Jones or Freddie Smith about this? Then you, you should have taken Freddie Smith, though. Yeah, I said Freddie. Freddie's good people. Yeah. Um, but that one, I'm like, I'm like, let me, let me. And they sent me three, three quotes um, from it as well, including the one about the, the smoke and weed and the bipolar. I thought, this sounds fascinating. So I went and listened to it. Said anything to my boss. I said, you know, normally I wouldn't say, can we put this up? But I've gotten permission from them to do so. You want to do it? And we'll link, obviously, the YouTube back to them. So we did. Um, I thought enough of it. I thought it was fascinating. Um, he talked openly about seeing his father die and the effect it had on him and the bipolar portion of it, which didn't surprise me. Because I've seen people have asked me about Pac-Man. You know, he's a, he's been a, he was a fascinating guy to cover because there were times where he was just great just to talk to. And there were times where he – you you thought he was going to kill someone right before your very eyes. I mean, that's kind of the epitome of bipolar. Um, I think he's a pretty smart guy and very street smart for sure. Um, you know, I think some of what he, he came off as it sounded a little excuse making. I mean, the, the thing in, in, in Vegas, there's no excuse for what took place there. And um, he feels like he got dragged through the mud and I'm sorry you, you, know, you caused that my friend. Um, you know, the weed thing I found interesting that he admitted it, but it didn't shock me and it didn't bother me. I, I, I was wondering what fans would think of that. And he said, listen, before one o'clock games, I'd, I'd hit it at, at, I think what he say, 8.30 or 9. And before a night game, he'd hit it at 2. And for these guys, it's pain management, man. It, it's, it's absolute pain management. And you don't have to like it, but it is what it is. And if that, if that helps them to ease the pain. And he went on to talk about it. Listen, you know, they'd give you Percocet like it was candy. And that's, look, if you want to take a hit off of a joint, it's not my thing, but if it's his thing and it helps him and it keeps him off something as dangerous as Percocet, which then leads to maybe something more dangerous, all for it. I, I just thought it was, I thought it was pretty revealing. I, I, I was, I, the, the bipolar stuff was interesting. He talked, you're right. He talked openly about his love for Cincinnati, his, his love for Mike Brown. I mean, he, he, he wasn't prompted to talk about Mike Brown. He talked about Mike Brown. He talked about Marvin Lewis. Um, I thought it was really well done. Um, it wasn't great interview questions. It's two NBA players, former NBA players, Matt Barnes and, and Steven Jackson, but I thought they, 
I thought they just kept the flow going in a conversational tone. I thought it was really well done, and I, I, I thought it was very interesting. If you didn't see it, it's on our website. If you don't want to go to our website, it's on YouTube. Um, but you can get it at local12.com. It's embedded there, and you can listen to it. I, I, I was really fascinated by it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. The whole thing with, with smoking weed, first of all, like not necessarily before every game, but just percentage of players – that smoke weed in the yeah. NFL has to be over 50%, right? Oh, easily. I mean, I would, I would venture to guess it's closer to 75. Yeah, and probably getting more all the time when guys are realizing, hey, this is probably a better way for me to manage my pain than taking a shot in my left knee or in my left ankle every single freaking week. Right. And then, you know, from a, just from a tolerance perspective, I would imagine a guy like Adam Jones, who says he's smoking every single day and, and before games, if he's smoking – hours before the game you're saying saying, what five six hours here before the game start i can't imagine he even like i can't imagine he's still under the influence in any form or fashion by the time the game starts so i don't think like the people are like oh that's why you couldn't remember plays it's like all right okay come on you know like what, what are we doing here i don't think that has anything to do with it um i do think it is interesting that so many of these guys are willing to smoke constantly um and smoke before games when they know it if anything, it's detracting from their performance, right? Maybe, like, I mean, maybe, but if, you, if you're doing it that early, as you mentioned, if it maybe allows you to get yourself to the point where you can get to warm up, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's taking some of the pain away from parts of your body that allows you then to go warm up and the warm out and the adrenaline gets you going and then it wears off. And because of the adrenaline gets you going, you can get through the game. I, 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 I'm guessing he didn't play games high. I'm right. just going to guess that it took the edge off the pain to get him going through warmups. If he'd have done it 15 minutes before kickoff, then okay, maybe he got something there. But no, well, I, I don't I, doubt that there's guys doing that. Maybe, too. and then um, that may be too. You might be right. And, and, and I, honestly, that was more my point is that it's, it kind of gives you some insight into, like, I mean, again, I, I understand they're doing it because they feel like it does help them, but like everyone pretty much knows and they have access to all the smartest medical and and strength and conditioning all those types of coaches and doctors everything that have told them like this is not a performance enhancer you know i I think it's revealing how these guys must feel after you know after practices and after games in terms of the pain and the things that they're going through uh physically that they're all willing to smoke weed like right before they play rick as as a and you coach high school basketball um and girls probably weren't as physical as guys are, but but I even see our guys in high school, how beat up they get as the season goes on. And that's in a 30-game schedule. I, I can't imagine an 82-game schedule, 48 minutes, and not everybody plays 48 minutes, but you know what I'm saying, a 48-minute game. Um, the pounding your body takes, the the, the physical toll of, of the physical – it's not, not as physical a game anymore as it was back in the, back in the day, Rick. But um, it's still a physical game. There's still big men playing that game. I'm going to guess you do. You need something to get through the season. So um, I, I, get, I get it. And Matt Barnes and, and Steven Jackson talk very openly about doing it when they play it. I don't think they, they care that anybody knows, and they're not the only ones that are doing it by, by far. And, again, if it gets guys through a season and through the pain management of it, okay. Yeah, and, and that's – like I, at the end of the day, it's not brain surgery that they're right. performing right here. And there's always those stories, which is my favorite thing. Like my favorite stories 
are the stories about the guys who were everyone swears they were better when they were high, right? Like, oh, he was an okay shooter, but he'd smoke before some games and like he'd just drop 30 on. Like, you know, there's always people always have that story about that one guy they played with who was better when he was high, whether it be high school, college, whatever. Right. Love right. those stories. Not a lot of them in the in, in the pros, I don't think, but a lot of those stories from high school and college ranks that I always love to hear those. And and let's face it, like some of this is just that people like weed too. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> no they, they say like, oh, I need it to get me through whatever. But like, they also just like weed and that's understandable. Like I get it. And uh, when you're that talented, you can kind of do what you want, I think. So um, it, let me ask you about the bipolar part because that, like you said, it's not a surprise. One a surpri- wasn't a surprise to me either. And I think that's the one thing that fans probably have the hardest time reconciling when it comes to, Adam Jones career in Cincinnati is that so often it felt like he was doing great things in the community and you'd see him in an interview. He'd give you a great thoughtful answer. And just from my perspective, I not that I'm working the beat daily, but you know, I helped uh, for the Enquirer at times uh, yep. when you were covering it and even after you, you left. And um, so I was around it a little bit and honestly, he was one of my favorite guys to be in the locker room and deal with. He was usually really willing to give you a quote and um, not just, kind of blow you off and get through the interview as quickly as possible, but he'd sit there and talk to you and treat you like a person. I I don't know if you had the same experiences, but I always really liked Adam Jones. And then of course you'd see him do something really idiotic where he didn't seem like he was in his right mind at all. Um, And you can kind of understand and, and maybe not, maybe not relate, but empathize with a guy who didn't want to admit that he was bipolar or had mental health issues because let's face it, whether we want to keep acting like we're getting better as a country at handling the stigma of that type of stuff. If you're signing a a huge contract of worth millions and millions of dollars and the guy has mental health issues, that is going to detract from his value. Probably, It's just the way it is. So I, I can completely understand why he wouldn't want to be diagnosed with that, why he wouldn't want to take the medication. And also some of these players like think it's going to take their edge away from them, right? Like it's a very violent game. Some of that anger and, and things that they deal with, with their mental health, they can take out and use on the field. They don't want to lose that edge. I get why they, they wouldn't want to take the medicine and, and admit they have that issue, but then it, it makes so much sense that that's what's leading to these inexplicable things that he was doing at casinos and bars and whatever else. Yeah. I mean, he, he did, he has done great things in the community. He's still a member of the community doing things in the community. And yet then he does have the, the rap sheet along, along with it where you're like, I get some of that sometimes is for show. Some of the things that players do in the community. Um, I think some of his was, was genuine. And, and so you see that you see, as we mentioned, some of the conversation, then you see the slapping somebody or getting busted in the casino. And you're like, man, what is wrong with this guy? Well, okay. Now, you know, yeah, and I mean, just just for the record, I had no problem with him going to the script club because I didn't think nothing was wrong with going to script club. He was just being rebellion. So yeah, got like the script club. Yeah, you in that Terrell? You in there? You in that garbage can? Garbage. <laughs> that was that's maybe my favorite Packers Jones moment it's a, was it's the, the Terrell Fryer feud. <laughs> All right, Skitty, let's switch gears to uh, baseball. Major League Baseball has discussed a radical plan that would eliminate the traditional American and National Leagues for 2020 and realign all six divisions for an abbreviated season. The plan would have all 30 teams return to their spring training sites in Florida and Arizona, playing regular season games only in those two states and without fans in an effort to reduce travel and minimize risk in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. They've also discussed just having all the teams in Arizona. 
The divisions would be realigned based on the geography of their spring training homes. The Reds would be in the Cactuses League's West Division, along with the Dodgers, the White Sox, the Indians, and the Angels. Skinny, do you like the idea of realigning the leagues and divisions for an abbreviated season? Yeah, we, we talked last week on the podcast about the, the Arizona concept because that was the first one floated. It, it feels like what Major League Baseball is doing is, is floating stuff through national media members and seeing what the, the reaction of everybody else is, including players. See what some of their reaction is. It's just, I think the logistics of all of it, Rick, are, are almost impossible. I, I saw Mike Trout talk about, because Arizona's governor came out and said, hey, we'll take all 30 teams if you want, bring them on here. And, um, you know, he made a good point that I didn't, you know, I've thought about a lot of these logistical things, but he said, my wife's pregnant. And so am I supposed to then, he goes, I'm not missing her, her the, the birth of our child. Am I supposed to go where she is and then come back and have to get quarantined for two weeks? I, you know. We've talked about the logistics of playing games in Arizona in the summertime are really hard. How about the logistics in Florida? And maybe you can get a chartered aircraft where you feel comfortable um, flying from the northern part of Florida to the southern part, but let's say you don't. We're going to now have four and a half hour, five hour bus rides for these guys through, through, through Florida when there's travel restrictions still going on. I just, I, look, I love that baseball is trying to salvage the season. I think we'd all love to see sports, even if it's just us watching on TV and no fans. I'm just saying, I just don't think the logistics of it makes sense and, and until you can be completely assured that, that, that everybody's going to be safe from this. I mean, we just saw – I mean, the NFL has banned people from their facilities, yet one of the players from the L.A. Rams just said he, he has coronavirus. Three members of the San Diego Chargers um, staff – they didn't say coaching staff or owner or whatever, but three members of the state have it. And I just – the safety issues and the logistics of all of it just don't seem like they're going to work. I wish they would, but I, 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 I'm sorry, I just don't see it. Let's throw all the logistics to the side for a second and just focus on the idea of mixing up the divisions and leagues. What, what do you think about yeah. that potential? Let's just say they find a way logistically that it makes sense and everyone's going to be healthy theoretically. What, what – I mean, make, making this change to where you're just playing a random season where the, the Reds are, you know, reigniting a, a rivalry with the Dodgers and you've got the Indians in there with them. What, what would you think of that? Yeah, no, I, 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 that, that part doesn't bother me. I know people from a traditional standpoint, but listen, we've, we've had realignment and jumbling before. We've had Well, and we're way switch. past the point of a traditional season anyway. That's correct so because what? we have interleague play any longer. And I think before long, Rick, you're going to have either one just giant league of baseball or you're going to have – no divisions in either the American or National League. So, that, yeah, that part doesn't bother me. I, I think as a Reds fan, it would suck this year, though, that, that you would have the, the Dodgers <laughs> in your division, right? I mean, that yeah. kind of sucks. It'd be diff- it would be a difficult division. Yeah, for sure. I mean, no, no doubt. I, that, that's the only part for me is I think that you'd say, listen, we're playing for a wild card berth at, at, at best here. Maybe that's all they're playing for anyway, even if they were in the, in the NL Central. But I'd rather have my shot at the NL Central than have it with, uh, with it being in the Dodgers division. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you there. It would certainly be better to play in an easier division. At the same time, I do think um, if we do get some form of weird baseball at some point this year, I wouldn't mind at all if there is some type of change-up just to make it feel different, just to bring something new. Um, and, and having something like this where you're playing in a totally different division would be something kind of fun, I guess. It's not a big deal e- either way to me. I, I wouldn't care really. But um, at the same time, I, I think it'd be – a nice little switch up for just kind of a weird situation altogether. That's not ideal to begin with. Yeah. And logistically the way they're doing it is it's, it's funny because you know, the Dodgers and Reds aren't geographically close, but in Arizona, they are, they're, 
facilities are geographically close. So they are trying to still do it by geography. It just doesn't look like it by the name of the Los Angeles Dodgers playing the Cincinnati Reds. So, um, yeah, I, I, that part doesn't bother me. I just think the logistics of it and pulling it off are just damn near impossible. All right, switching to college basketball. Colgate, excuse me, Colgate University graduate transfer Ropolis Ivanowskis committed well to and signed with the University of Cincinnati men's basketball program this week. Ivanowskis is a six foot ten, two hundred and thirty pound forward who played the past two seasons at Colgate after beginning his collegiate career at Northwestern, where he saw limited action due to injury. He earned Patriot League second team accolades as a senior last season for the Raiders, averaging thirteen point one points, seven point six rebounds, and two point one assists, while shooting forty three point two percent from the field. He poured in twenty one points with nine rebounds against the Bearcats last season in a sixty seven sixty six Colgate win on December fourteenth at Fifth Third Arena. The Jaron Cumberland game, as we remembered as. <laughs> Yes, we do. Skitty, what do you think Ivan Auskis' role will be for the Bearcats this season? Yeah, the only problem is he doesn't get to play UC this year. I mean, he probably had arguably his best game against the best opponent they played um, in that game. And he was huge because I remember listening to the game and, and just the, the name made it stand yeah, out. second in half, fact, he was great. Oh, he, was, he, he carried him. Um, yeah, he, we talked about the, the, everybody needs a shooter, right? He can shoot it. He's 6'10". He's not a post guy, really, but he can shoot it. Um, I, th- I think it's a nice get for them. Is it a major piece? Probably not, but is it a nice piece? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the shooting part is interesting because he attempts a decent amount of threes. Last year, um, he took over 100 of them, but he only shot 26.3% last year, which you'd say, uh, that ain't very good. How skilled is this guy? But the year before, he was right around the same amount of attempts. He shot 43%. So it's like, which are you going to get? Usually when that happens, the answer is he's somewhere in between. between, So he's maybe like a 34, 35% three-point shooter. Seems reasonable. And to be honest with you, I went through and watched all his film uh, for Colgate last season. And when you you watch him, he's a shooter. Like you can see certain guys like that have a legit shot. They look confident when they're released and they have a smooth stroke. That's this guy. So, I mean, he he is not someone who got lucky that first season on limited attempts. Um, you know, maybe 43, over 43% is a little much to ask. But he, he I think I feel comfortable saying he's going to shoot 35% or better from three-point range. Looking at him, Skinny, I think, you know, he's definitely taller. But the way he kind of plays, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Jason Carter for Xavier right. in terms of uh, what role he might play for UC. I don't think he's going to be a star, but could he be like, uh, your your fourth or fifth guy in your starting five, or the first guy off the bench. Yeah, I definitely think that's possible. He's a he's a a decent rebounder. The one thing I really like about him is he has tremendous hands. I mean, he catches everything that's that's thrown his way, and also that helps him rebound out of his area, um, both on the offensive and defensive ends. I think it's a nice piece. This is the type of guy that John Brandon will use on the offensive end, a skilled um, face-up player like this. I have to imagine one thing for UC is it's probably weird uh, recruiting Caucasians at this point. Having an integrated <laughs> team again uh, is probably pretty pretty weird for them. It, it, you know, you got a chance to play two big guys together. I mean, he's not a post guy, but at 6'10", he is long. And, and obviously, Chris Vogt's seven feet tall. And maybe this this opens things up a little bit more for Chris Vogt, too. You had another shooter around Chris Vogt to maybe maybe play a little more through him in the in the, in the post next season. So, yeah, I, you look, you weren't, you're not getting this guy to, to be your, your, your main star. Um, but as a, as a nice added piece, when, when I – Literally, when I got the email in my box yesterday and I saw the grad transfer, I thought, I wonder if they got the – yeah, they sure did. They got the guy because I saw the yeah. Colgate. I thought, that's the guy. Yeah, I mean, that, I thought that was a good get. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a, a real solid piece and one that fits in with what John and Brand, what, what John Brandon wants to do on the offensive end. Defensively, I don't think he's great. You know, he's a little slow laterally, um, but at least he gives you some length. So uh, if you, you, you tee him up with vote, you, you'll be lacking defensively because neither one of them are very good um, and they're not the strongest, toughest dudes inside in the paint. But at the same time, you will have a lot of length with a seven-footer and a 6'10 guy. So hopefully that will make up, make up for some of the deficiencies. Play a little 3-2 zone. You got two big, long guys down on the blocks. Well, you know, we might – that was one thing that John Brandon said last year that he never really got around to doing is kind of implementing his own defense. Now, he's, he's kind of more like Chris Mack to me where he's not – a zone guy per se, but then again, we saw Chris Mack go to a one three one for the majority of his best season at Xavier. So um, I think John is willing to to do what he has to do to fit his best personnel and get them on the floor. And uh, I think we could see a zone with with this guy playing alongside Vote. That's a, a possibility. And of course, Mamadou Diarra is kind of in that same mold of a long forward. He's a better defender, but a, a long forward who can kind of help you there. So um, skinny on the. The other side of the river, NKU, added another new player for the upcoming season in the form of 2020 recruit David Baum. Baum is from the Czech Republic and averaged 13.6 points per game, 5.3 rebounds, and 2.1 assists while leading his country to a third-place finish in the FIBA 18U European Championship last year. Uh, how do you see Baum fitting in for the Norse? I think the good thing is you now have a second guy in this marketplace with that little thing over the O. What's that little thing over the O called? I, I don't know. It's not a tilde. That's in that's no, in that's Spanish. A tilde, tilde Spanish. Yeah. Over yeah. The end. Uh, I don't what, know what that mark is called. Umlet? Is it an umlet? Uh, I'll be honest. I really don't know. Yeah. Him. Him and Moritz Bowringer of the of the Bengals. They've. Uh, how many How many markets you think have have two guys with the little thing over the O? Not many. Uh, not many. I mean, maybe like GW. I feel like they always yeah, have a couple of guys yeah, with it. It's possible. Yeah, I don't know anything about the guy other than, than just what I read stat-wise wise on him. Um, you know, you probably talked to, to people about him, um, so I'll throw it back at you. What, what, what do you know about him? Well, actually, I did get to watch um, some film. I saw the, the FIBA 18U games where he averaged 13 and 5. Um, were on synergy and then also I actually got uh, to see a little bit of his video from this past season at Montverde um, where he played for their national development team and not you know not the team ranked number one in the country they have a, a national an international team as well they probably got seven teams that's development yeah it's uh, CBD I think they're like sponsored by some uh, oil you rub on your palms or something like that but uh, he is an interesting piece I think this is more of a long play for the Norse and Darren Horn. Um, you know, maybe he's a guy that can come off the bench a little bit as a freshman and give you some outside shooting. I think he's going to need to get a little bit stronger. And defensively, he'll, he definitely will need some work. Uh, but offensively, he has an interesting skill set. He's long. He's about 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, he can really shoot the three. He has a ton of confidence. He can shoot it with, you know, with guys up on him. And uh, with that height, he can still get it off. And then he's also showing some ability to, to break down closeouts. You know, you fly out on him because he's a shooter. He'll take a couple dribbles, cross over, and pull up from the mid-range, and, and sometimes even get all the way to the rim and, and use his length to finish. He has some, some post moves, he'll rebound a little bit. So I, I don't think he's the toughest guy in the world, but at the same time, long-term, you know, I think I don't want to compare him to one of the best players in school history and Dantes Walton, who, who really had a fantastic senior season. But I do think he could play kind of a similar role in that four spot where they've run some offense through him and, and really let him do his thing when he gets going from the outside. And he's longer than Dantes Walton. 
Yeah, yeah, he's uh, Dante's probably about six six. This guy's six seven, six eight. Um, a little bit more lanky, so uh, not the athlete that Dantes was, though. So d- different players. I don't want to necessarily compare them, but I think they could play, you know, kind of in that similar similar spot, and and you can run some offense through them, especially with the way that Darren Horn does things on the offensive end. They also got what Darius Harding. Um, tell me about yeah. him because he's he, what a junior college kid, correct? Yeah. I, I, now that's a guy that I think they're going to ask to make an immediate impact. He's you know six five shooting guard or you put a put him at the three whatever you want he's a wing um but really athletic and 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 a tough strong dude just a bucket getter he's not a knockdown shooter from the outside but he can hit the three he takes a lot of tough ones um he loves the step back he's pretty good at that he can shoot it off the dribble um and then he can get all the way to the rim and finish has some mid-range craftiness as well he's just uh a guy that I think really brings a, a punch to their offense that they definitely needed with the all the talent that they graduated yeah, Xavier officially announced guys we've already talked about Nate Johnson and Brian Griffin Griffin the division two transfer and Johnson from from Gardner Webb so no surprise with them but um, Johnson makes a more immediate impact right yeah without question I think you know Griffin gives them some insurance in case like Deontay Miles isn't ready yet to sort of be the backup to Zach Fremantle um, I think he will be but at the same time you know there's no Zach Fremantle still young Deontay Miles will be getting his first action so Foul trouble is definitely a concern with both of those guys. And then if someone gets injured, you know, you, you don't have – it'll be nice to have an experienced guy in there with some toughness and bulk that can give you rebounding. That's what Brian Griffin does coming up yeah, from the D2 Rick, level. Yeah, Rick, not to cut you off, but the thing is, I didn't realize, and maybe this was wrong in the release, that said he was only 6'6". Six, six, is that right? Yeah, that was something. Actually, uh, Brian Snow and I talked to Travis Steele Wednesday night. We're recording this on Thursday morning. We, we talked to him last night. Um, and he brought that up to us that he had grown three or four inches since he got to college. And I was like, well, that makes a whole lot of sense that he wasn't recruited more heavily coming out of high school than if he was a six, six fat guy who was about 300 pounds. Cause he's lost about 60 pounds as well since he's been there. Now they list him at like 225 or 230. There's no way he's that. He's like 245, 250, I'd say. But that being said, he's a pretty good athlete. He moves really well for a guy that size. And he's definitely a powerful dude who dunks a lot and, and rebounds really well. So he gives you something that you didn't otherwise have. He's definitely different from the other bigs, but, uh, I don't think he's going to be a big factor on this year's team and you only have him for one year. I think he's definitely a role guy towards the end of your rotation. Uh, But Nate Johnson, like you mentioned, they're going to ask him to, whether it's a starter or first guy off the bench type of role, they're going to ask him to provide some offense and and shooting because that's what he does. He's also uh, probably the best defender on that Gardner Webb team. So uh, he'll be asked to, to fit in as, as one of their, I think he's going to be, what they wanted Bryce Moore to be, or at least that's what they're hoping. He's kind of a similar player, but I think he's a little bit more talented, especially as a shot maker. Um, and then defensively, he gives you some of that same energy and toughness. Let's go to Kentucky real quick. We haven't really talked about them of late. Um, it turned out all five starters ended up going pro. I don't think it surprised us for four of them. Did it surprise you with EJ Montgomery? Maybe a little bit, just because they had kind of they'd kind of built up this thing where they were showing, hey, look, if you stay that extra year, P.J. Washington, if you stay that extra year, Nick Richards, you'll become the guy and we'll honor that. And you will become that first round or lottery type pick. I think E.J. Montgomery was on that same track. I think he could have had that same progression if he stayed one more year. At the same time, I totally understand for these guys, especially um, when you're with a group of guys that you sort of came in with and you got to know and everyone is going to be gone when they all leave at once like that. I kind of understand not wanting to be the last guy with a bunch of incoming freshmen. Um, but yeah, it surprised me a little bit that he made the decision to jump. Skinny, how, I mean, how 
much of a rebuilding process do you think this will be for UK? I mean, they, obviously you also lost uh, do, Duesang right? as a transfer. So it's like, I mean, they're starting over from scratch almost again from what I think some people thought they might have a pretty good routine, team returning. Yeah, I, I thought I read a piece by Gary Parrish, uh, I guess yesterday, Wednesday, whatever. And um, I didn't think of it in these terms, but, but you know, look, Cal's been the master of this, right? He, he really has, as much as I make fun of him doing less with more. And I do believe that, by the way. Um, he still has been really good at, at at rebuilding very quickly. But Gary made the point, and he's right. I mean, the best teams that he's had, he's always had like a, a scorer coming back, one key guy coming back. He doesn't have that. And so you're starting literally from almost a full roster of, of new guys um, for the most part. Um, and, you know, you may need to add – I, I don't think that Har- Matt Harms did not make a decision yet, right? The Purdue Center, right? I, I do not believe he did, unless it's and been I, since we've been talking. Yeah, uh, and so I mean, it's almost like you you kind of need a veteran presence like him around. I, look, they're going to have talent. They always have talent. I know there was a report that one of the, one of their recruits. I'm drawing a blank on which one was thinking of of turning pro already, um, or at least exploring that option as opposed to to going to college. Um, he's been really good at it, but yeah. I, I, I think there was some hope maybe that, that, I don't know, maybe quickly changed his mind initially and was going to stay, and that obviously wasn't going to happen, and that at least E.J. Montgomery would stick around. I mean, yeah, that, that's seven losses. I mean, you lost your starting five. You lost Khalil Whitney. You lost Juzang. Um, that, that, that's, a, that's a lot to try to rebuild from. Usually he's had for his really good teams, the ones that have made deep runs, he's always had that kind of one guy still sticking around, and he doesn't have that. Yeah, well, and, and Terrence Clark is the guy you were talking about, yes, the top, yeah. top yep. five player in the country yep. uh, at 24-7. We have him as number four, was talking about. But he did send out a tweet saying, you know, don't worry, my loyalty never switched up, can't wait to be on campus. So it sounds like he's definitely going to be there. I will say, Terrence Clark and B.J. Boston, the top two guys in this class, both top ten guys, I absolutely love. I think B.J. Boston is an absolute killer on the offensive end. He's not the same player, but I get the same feelings as when I watched Jason Tatum, uh, who obviously had a a great season at Duke and is now um, off to a great start for the Boston Celtics in the NBA. I think he can be that type of big-time scorer right away. The other thing is I do think – Adding Davion Mintz from Creighton, the the experienced point guard, was big for Kentucky. They needed another ball handler with the guys they were losing um, and getting an experienced guy to handle the ball. From Creighton, yeah, from Creighton. Yeah, will definitely be a, a nice fit. Yeah, did I say where, – where did I say he was from? I, I didn't know if you said. I, I thought oh, okay. you just ma- mentioned his name. So Yeah, so – and then, yeah, Matt Harms. I mean, I don't think Matt Harms is very good. I don't think he's a huge difference maker for Kentucky. But at the same time, you know, Cal does well with seven-foot-three guys in the paint. So, um, I, I, and they could definitely use another experienced big man. Um, they could use any experience across the board. So, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see them add him as well to go with mints. And then with that recruiting class, you have six guys signed, um, and all of them are in the top 50. You certainly have a chance. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the talent's not an issue. The question is, it, it just having that one holdover always seems to be a big key. Yep. All right. Skinny, it was announced earlier this week that the Cincinnati Athletic Department is ending its soccer, men's soccer program. Uh, They were searching for, in the process of searching for a new coach. Instead, they decided to just go ahead and end the program altogether due to financial issues that they're going to be facing uh, with COVID-19 issues. What do you think this means for the future of college athletics? Well, you want the cynical answer to this too? There's a part of me that, that, really has wondered this that that 
as much as UC put a lot of eggs in that basket of going to the Big 12, that once Mike Bone left and they started looking at the books, um, there's a lot of capital outlay there that they had to find a way to make up for, and this was a convenient way to start doing that. That also said, though, I think this is just the initial shoe that's going to drop. Um, I mean, let's face it, the NCAA tournament, uh, not having that and the money that shared from that affected athletic departments for the fiscal year of, of 1920. Now they have to look ahead to 2021 and they've already asked, you know, some have already asked coaches to make cuts. Um, I think Chris Mack's taken a, a pretty good pay cut at Louisville and I'm not feeling sorry for Chris, but they've asked him to take a pay cut and they've got a pretty solvent athletic department. And I just don't know if you don't have college football this fall um, with fans. And it sounds like more and more that they're, they're, you know, they're talking about, look, we're not going to play without the fans. You got some real big decisions to make in athletic departments financially. And, and I, like I said, I think this is the, this is the first shoe to drop. I, I do think the timing and the convenience of it, I'm not so sure UC wasn't going to need to do something like this anyway, but th- this is just the first shoe. And you, I, I know you saw the story, the commissioners of really what you would consider not the five power conferences in college football have asked the NCAA to relax some requirements to, to keep them as, as Division I members from an attendance standpoint, from a scholarship standpoint. Um, I, it, it, these next few months leading up to college football, if they don't have it or have it in a reduced form, are really going to be tough for these athletic departments. Yeah, well, you wonder if this, how this changes things. I mean, if it's big enough, if it's really going to be disruptive enough to fundamentally change – certain things and and how they're looked at like for instance will the ncaa decide it's no longer non-for-profit will they decide to be run more like a business and will that lead to players potentially being able to profit off their likeness things of that nature and and the reason i could see some of that happening is because they in certain financial situations they might they may have to look at this a little more cutthroat than they are right now like right now there's still that that line they walk because they want to act like they're about the student athletes. They're not for profit. You know, it's a, they're looking out for the good of the kids. But when it comes to making some of the financial decisions they're going to need to be making over the next year plus, that might not necessarily be the case anymore. And it may be really difficult to still act like you're a non-for-profit when you're making those types of business decisions. Um, I think it could have some fundamental changes. I do at the, too. At the same time, they'll probably do everything they can to prevent that from happening. They're going to fight it tooth and nail. So um, it's hard to really predict because you just don't know how big this really is. We hear constantly about how much money the NCAA is making off the student athletes and how they're bringing in millions or billions of dollars off uh, football and, and the NCAA tournament and all that type of stuff. But the reality of it is those are the top, you know, 25 big programs in the nation with big time football, making huge TV contracts and, and things like that for the most part, a lot of these schools are not in that type of situation. They're no, losing you're taking, money. You're taking from the general, yeah, you're taking from the general fund. And let's face it, this general fund is going I mean, to be depleted. It's going to be depleted, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of these, these programs lose money on football. I mean, you see, that's the situation they're in. Look, they've poured tons and tons and tons of resources and gone into debt to keep this football program going and try to get it to the point that it was at a, a you know, a power five status. It didn't happen, and I, I don't think UC fans would necessarily argue that it was the wrong decision based on the success they're having right now with Luke Fickle. But at the same time, that's a big reason they find themselves in the position they're in right no now. No doubt. Because it costs a ton of money 
to uh, compete at that level in football. Yeah, and I, I'm probably jumping the gun with this, but I, I do wonder, um, you know, if you get to the point where a, a lot of sports are not funded any longer. And look, my daughter played golf in college on a, on a scholarship. It was not a full, but I certainly it was certainly a nice windfall for for us to to, to foot the bill. Um, do you really just make it? Hey, the, the only things that make money are 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 football and men's basketball. And if you can be solvent, you can pay it out. Of, you know, if, if baseball, if certain places, LSU's always had great programs and drawn. I mean, a lot of the schools. Listen, if you can, you can be solvent and pay scholarship money out of out of ticket sales. That's great. If not, then we're going to become non-scholarship. And if that means we don't compete at a high level, we don't compete at a high level. I mean, you just at some point you got to pay the bills. If there's no money to pay the bills, you can't play. I mean, we really could be looking at a scenario where some of those sports like soccer and, and baseball and um, everything else that's you know even lower profile than that become club sports at the collegiate level. Because I mean, if, even if, even some women's basketball. I mean, some if only places a hand, it puts the bill, some places it doesn't. If only a handful can afford to to play at that level with scholarship players and everything, then how can you really have a legitimate you know college sport? I mean, you're going to have to make it all essentially club teams, and at that point, man, it. It gets real interesting. I, I'm fascinated by all of this. It's hard to wrap my mind around how big it's going to be. It, it I is but it being catastrophic with correct. the way things are trending. At the same time, I could see this being like, eh, this is UC doing something that's convenient for itself and some other schools looking to get out of some bad situations right now to, to put themselves on, on the right. And that was my point. cynical answer to start with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you could be onto something there. Like this could all be, look, when we, as soon as we get back to playing again, the money's going to be rolling in. The NCAA will be fine. Um, there's that argument too. And I think that has a lot of merit. I I'm looking forward to seeing how it all plays out. And I, I'm hoping for the best for all of these athletes. Cause I mean, it really would be a shame if, you know, there was all of a sudden no college soccer. Like, I don't think that's going to happen, but that would really suck for people who no love question. that sport. No, no, like I said, my daughter played golf in college. I, I feel for those, anybody, I mean, you've worked hard. You've, you've landed yourself a chance to pay for some of your college. Again, for a lot of those sports, that we're talking about, you're not fully funded scholarship wise, but um, there are scholarship money to go around and it would, it would, it would suck. But the thing is though, Rick, I mean, these decisions, I know we're only in April, but you got about a three month window here to start to make some tough, tough calls on a lot of things. And, and look, hopefully things change for the better quicker rather than, than, than later. I don't know. I mean, you're talking, you've seen Cal, California's governor says he doesn't think people are going to be in stadiums for a year. Uh, and maybe that's just his state, but holy cow, I, I just don't know where we're going. All right, let's get to some questions from yes. Twitter to wrap this thing up. And this is a legitimate one here. Uh, seems inevitable that sports will return behind closed doors at first. How do you think that will change the experience of watching, covering, commenting on sports, both from a fan and media perspective? I don't think it changes a whole lot. I mean, as much as I like being on site, and certainly then, you know, you, you, if you're covering an event, you need to go talk to people after the game. But we're already adjusting right now from a media perspective. I mean, the last week plus, we've done a video conference with Zach Taylor. I got all the things I needed in that video conference, as did, I think, my media brethren. Uh, again, I know the TV people probably, you don't get a, as clear a picture on Zoom as you would with a, with a camera, but you get at least your content. Uh, we're doing one with Zach, uh, uh, with Duke Tobin. We're going to do another one with Zach Taylor next week. Um, they're going to make the, the the draft choices available on Zoom conferences for us, so we'll be able to to do those things. Um, maybe that's just the way we're we're, we're going to cover it. I, I mean, look, I 
I, I make every Bengals road trip and I make, made them all except for the last two London trips. And I was still able to do my job from literally my couch. I watched the game. I wrote a quick gamer off of that. Um, I have enough sources that can send me quotes after the game that, that served my purpose and was able to do it that way. And um, it, I, hopefully if you read those stories, you didn't know that I wasn't there, even though I didn't have a, a, a London dateline on it. So um, I don't know if it changes much in the way of covering games, I do think it changes in the way you are able to maybe eventually source people, um, develop sources, develop contacts, develop relationships, because you won't have that daily back and forth with somebody or the chance to just sidle up and talk to them about something else. I think that that part might change a little bit. Yeah, I think, um, you know, from a commenting perspective, like doing what we're doing right now, I think it'll be enhanced. I think when sports return, we will be at an all-time high for people giving takes and having opinions yeah. and thoughts. Everyone will be at home watching everything. So I think from that perspective, the content will be great. From a covering, do you think, like, for instance, post-game press conferences after a college football or, God forbid, it goes this long college basketball game, would we do, like, Zoom press conference afterwards? Because I maybe. wouldn't have an issue with that. No, maybe. I, I, wouldn't I think either. that no, works I mean, fine. Yeah, it, yeah it, it's, it's possible. Uh, I yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I mean, we're we're dude, we're doing it with the NFL draft. I mean, I'm I'm in the middle of it. I'm doing which I'm, this with I'm the looking NFL forward draft. to that. I'm looking forward to the draft. I think it's going to be really really interesting to watch. Yeah, and I'm. Not, it's funny, I, you know. I know some people get kick and stomp and and whatnot, but I mean, like I said, I got what I needed from Zach Taylor last week. Hopefully, I get what I need from now. Granted, maybe I don't get the answers that we want all the time, but just from a you know, uh, you're able to ask your questions and get correct. Something. That's correct, and so. I, it really hasn't been a negative effect in that regard at this point. And I don't think it's going to be through the draft. Like I said, I think the place it does come into, if let's just say they say, listen, this year, no media involved at on sites, no fans involved on sites. We're just going to play game practice and play games and, and put them on TV. And we're going to have to adjust our coverage. Look, we're all going to be in the same boat a, but I do think it does take away from that kind of daily relationship. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point. I think you, you will lose some of the personal stories and, stuff that comes out, it'll be a lot more things being fed by the PR departments as opposed to the things that happen organically that you, you find out while you're BSing with somebody during downtime throughout the year. Um, in terms of like play-by-play and the broadcast, do you think they'll be in person in a booth isolated by themselves trying to stay I, apart? Do you think they're doing it from home like they've started doing some of these ESPN broadcasts at the lower levels? Yeah, no, I, I mean, look, I, I think if, if we're talking about social distancing, I mean, you can be in a broadcast booth and be far enough away from each other to, to not be in contact. And if you're up in a booth and there's nobody else up there um, and the fact that camera people are scattered throughout, um, I, 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 I think that sounds safe. I, I still don't know all the logistics if it's going to work where you're sequestering all these people for a period of time. But from that logistical part, yeah, I think that part would work. I think you could have those people on site. All right, as a follow-up to that question, what are some creative things Lees could do to enhance that experience? Uh, for instance, NBA teams playing in high school gyms or enhanced in-game availability of players and coaches. That's the one, uh, the back end, that I think they will have to do. With no crowd noise, uh, a lot of the atmosphere taken out, I think miking up a lot more guys and, and giving you live feeds of, of hearing what's going on on the field, on the court, will be huge going forward if we're playing games without fans. Yeah, we, we talk, I, I mean, I love the the, the- Creighton Xavier all access. I, I don't know if I want that for every game, but I, I found it fascinating as a coach. I found it exceedingly fascinating. Um, you know, a lot of times, even in the NFL, I, I think most people aren't even going to understand what people are saying, but I, I do think you want to hear some of that, that interaction and some of, some of that. So yeah, I think, I think they'll have to do it. 
I think that it opens itself up to maybe the whole, the whole cheating thing again. You hear you hear a guy make a play call, and if you're monitoring it, you can, you can at least get a little gist of it and maybe quickly signal down to your defensive guy. So I think there's got to be some care with that too, right? Uh, you know, basketball, not as much. Baseball, obviously, we already have that, that's, that scandal that's gone through. I think there's some logistics that have to be worked out there. But, yeah, you're going to have to do something along those, along those lines. I don't know if you saw, was that, it was career Taiwan that started to play some games, Rick, and they actually had robot fans. Did you see that? I did not. I missed the robot fans. How they ro- well they had robot fans to ch- well to try to create some atmosphere and make noise. The robot fans made noise. But they have actual robots like in the stands. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Why yeah. don't they just pipe in crowd noise over like a PA? That's a legit question too. But they had robot fans because like I've been there. I remember when I was setting up uh, for NFL Network doing a Thursday night game for the Bengals one time. We were there the day before setting everything up. And they pipe that crowd noise in during yep. practice sure. to yeah. a deafening level. I mean, so they, I mean, they can easily make it sound like the real thing. It's, I've, I've heard it in person. If the Bengals can do it, anybody can do it. So yeah, no, and maybe, maybe that'll be allowed too. Of, of listen, you know, you, you can set it to a certain decibel level, but yeah, you can set it to that level. And oh my God, pipe in the crowd noise. all types of scandals if they start allowing that in. <laughs> I, I'm in for the uh, giving us more access. I think the miking guys up more will be will be good stuff. The idea of playing like in weird settings, like he said, NBA. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not for that. Um. I just don't like, I think there's logistical issues and like size of the courts and things like that, that you'd have to factor in that they're not going to, they're not going to repaint the lines. They're not going to make a high school court or gym bigger, you know, at the, the 84 compared to 90 feet right. courts, uh, stuff like that. I, I don't see that really happening. I don't think you can do it at like the, the high school level for other sports either uh, just cause they're not equipped to handle. Like, I mean, maybe you could do something like the NFL does the hall of fame game. Maybe you could do something where NFL teams play at like a, a different stadium for some reason, but I don't know that that really adds much from, yeah, a, I don't, from a fan's yeah, I don't perspective. Think, I don't think it does either. Yeah. I'm, I'm all in on the finding more ways like the XFL was going to try to do where they were giving you more access uh, to coaches and players during games. Um, I think that would be, that would be the best. Um, all right, Skinny, a lot of people are interested on your uh, clothing choices these days, so we'll get into a couple questions there. Uh, what's the over-under on times a week Skinny wears quarantine time real pants? Vegas is looking at over-under one and a half. This guy says he's pounding the under. Like real pants? Like slacks real pants? Uh, I think we'll count it as anything with like buttons. You're not a jeans guy, as we've mentioned, so it's not like you're wearing jeans. So yeah, well, probably it, would be slacks for you. So, so, so Short pants question. do not count. Short pants do not count. Then, then if he pounded the under, he's the winner. <laughs> okay. I, so I, dude, I, I'm not sure I've worn anything other than sweats. I've got a pair of, uh, of basketball shorts on as we speak. I've, I've worn uh, summertime short pants when it was nice. Um, I, dude, I haven't put slacks on in a month. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm more of a jeans guy. I don't have to wear slacks too often. I haven't put jeans like on either. It's, it's literally, it's been, it's been sweats, uh, basketball shorts, or summertime short pants. That's it. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I mean, I haven't put anything on with buttons or a belt on it. Good so. job pounding the under, man. That was that was a, that's 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 having inside knowledge right there. <laughs> yeah, well, I I don't think that was too hard to figure out. Another uh, tweeter says, "Does Skinny wear sandals or flip flops?" Neither. Don't like uh, either. Okay, that, that there you go. Because they want to know if so, they want to know if you were a socks with sandals guy, but you uh, don't wear. Them, so. I think the only time, honestly, I, I have a pair of shower shoes that that when I've gone to like. Uh, basketball camp in the summer to coach i will i don't have to do anymore because the place we go to you have your own shower but we had kind of that college dorm life community shower so i wore shower shoes for that but that those don't really count as sandals or flip-flops to me and and i don't wear them in general no not a chance 
All right. Uh, someone else wants to know, do you miss your time as a UK beat reporter for the papers? Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, because I, I, I liked, I, I liked the two seasons. The only thing I didn't like, I, I, I hate, you know me, I hate recruiting. I hate, I hate everything about it. Um, I hated covering it. So I was glad to get away from that portion of it, but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, it, it was a lot of travel cause I had to go to Lexington three, four, five days a week. And you know, by the time you make the drive, gather your stuff, write your story, come back home, it can be, it can be pretty lengthy time. But yeah, I, I did it for five years and, and loved it. Love the SEC. I'd, I'd like to know, what's your favorite beat that you've worked? I, I'd say that. Okay. Honestly, that, yeah, that one, because I, I don't know. I just, you know, I went to the university. I, I grew up a fan of the SEC. It was kind of cool to finally get a chance to go to all those towns and, and cities. And the, the season had kind of a nice, it always had a nice ebb and flow to it back then of, you know, this day, this happened, this day, this happened, this day, you'd have a teleconference with the coaches, this day, you'd be back in Lexington, then there'd be a game, and you'd fly out to a city, then you'd come back. Um, I think I talked about it on one of the podcasts, March was just a whirlwind, because you'd, you know, you'd go to a city for the SEC tournament, and stay for the week, and then come home real quick, and head back out to the NCAA tournament, and Kentucky was at least usually going to second weekends then, so you'd, you'd turn right back around and go back out again, and March felt like a whirlwind, so I'd say that was probably the one. I, I, and I love high school sports, as you know. I always enjoyed covering high schools on both sides of the river. So I, I like that as much. I, I do not like professional sports. I'm not going to lie. I hate covering it. <laughs> what's, the, what's your favorite event you've ever covered? Uh, derby. There's no doubt. Yeah, Derby by, by far. I covered 10 derbies and just that week was always a lot of work and a lot of fun too. And I just, I love horse racing. So that, that, that one for me. All right. Another one off Twitter. What things in sports annoyed you before this, but you miss now? Like for this, for instance, this guy says he hates the charge and the DH, but would kill to watch those things right now. Well, that's a good one. That's a, that's actually a really good question because I, for the I, record, it, I would not kill to watch the charge. Like, I know I, you, I, yeah, I know you wouldn't. I, I don't uh, want to see it. Um, maybe that annoying K zone. That's a good one. That's a really was, good one. I hate the, it. The thing was annoying. The thing was it. annoying, but I'd love to see the K zone right now, right? Yeah, that'd be great. That's a really good one. I, I will say on the flip side of that, and I'm not one that watched a lot of ESPN in mornings, but now that you know, I every time I flip on the news, I get the same coronavirus update, and I don't want to sound callow about that, but I just it just gets mind numbing after a while. So I find myself now watching more ESPN and that goofy get up show. I never realized how much of a punchable face Mike Greenberg had. Oh, he's, he's just the got a worst. He has got a punchable face. I, I, to this day, I will never understand how the show Mike and Mike was so popular. It sucked. It absolutely sucked. See, I like, no, I like Golick. He's just a big lug, and he knows he's, yeah, he's a big he's lug. He's okay, but the show was terrible because yes, they had no chemistry. They didn't work well together at all. Correct. And Greenberg is terrible. He's very self-serving is what he is. Yeah, he's he's not fun. I do not enjoy him. Um, I, mine is the the Twitter scroll. You know, like my, so. Mine is there's that moment that happens during a game on a random like Tuesday night, and maybe you're watching it, maybe you're not. But all of a sudden, your Twitter feed just starts flying, and everyone's saying the same thing. Well, and sometimes it makes you flip to that game. You're like, wait, well, what, what did I miss? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, right, whether right. either I'm watching the game and I'm tweeting the same thing, or all say, you know, the, all the tweets say the same thing at once. Or you see that happen, you go, wait, what the hell just happened? So you start flipping around trying to find out what it was. I love those moments, especially when it's not like a Saturday where everyone's watching sports. Right. It's like that Tuesday night, it's just something happened in an NBA game that's nuts and you maybe didn't happen to be watching it. That is the best 
Love that feeling. Um, I miss it. So I, I guess that isn't something that annoyed me. That's just something I really miss. No, that's um, a good question. I like the question. Yeah. In terms of things that annoy me, man, I, what about challenges? Like replays at the end of basketball games that take forever to figure out? Yeah, I'd more so. I'd so. sit through a three-minute replay right now. <laughs> I'm serious. Of, of, of a game-winning shot or an out-of-bounds? No, out of just bounds to figure with, out who tipped it last on a rebound yeah. and go out-of-bounds with 45 where, where you seconds see, left in an eight-point game. Yeah, and you see the camera shot. Well, but the thing is, though, a lot of times you're hit, you are you may have something hinging on that eight-point game in that call, exactly right? right. Exactly I mean, right. Exactly right. It may not be the, the, the full decision of who wins or loses, but who wins or loses money. Don't um, even get me started on betting how much I missed that. <laughs> yeah, no no question. I, 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 and think about this for a second. This is, this is – I was thinking about this the other day. This was the first NCAA tournament that I was going to get a chance to bet legitimately, right? The, you know, the whole not, – not have the Vegas experience of the first weekend, but kind of the first one where, man, this is cool. I can – this is the first time I can legitimately go bet the NCAA tournament. And it I got know. wiped out. It almost feels like that was kind of karma. It really did. After such a good year, too. And maybe, maybe it was honestly God looking out for me, being like, look, <laughs> you, you had a great football season, my man. You somehow didn't screw it up during basketball season because you were too busy. Do not blow it here in the tournament all in two weeks. Scroll your money away and go buy your pints of ice cream. Yeah, I think that maybe that's what was going on there. Uh, Skinny, one final question to wrap this up. A little bit more serious one. Kind of uh, interesting that this person would ask us this question. Uh, but they said that their son wants to get into broadcasting slash journalism. But everyone they ask about it just tells them, don't do it. <laughs> so aside from that advice, what advice would you have to a young journalist slash broadcaster who wants to get into the business. Which, by the way, our first advice would be don't do it. Don't do it, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no, don't. um, I I mean, I would say this. I would would certainly have myself a plan to do something else, try to do this on the side, and if you get really good at it, someone will notice, and then you can make it a full-time career, hopefully. It's getting exceedingly difficult to do, and who knows when we're done with all this, what's left from a newspaper perspective, what's left from a radio perspective, what's left even from a television perspective. Um, obviously, online's kind of thriving right now because it's the place people are turning. And, and TV's actually, TV news is actually doing pretty well right now because it's the place people are turning. But I, I would say plan for something else to do um, and then do podcasts, do whatever you can to, to get your foot in the door. And if you are good enough, then hopefully somebody finds you. But I would not set that out to say, this is going to be my full-time career come hell or high water. It's, it's become exceedingly difficult. I mean, when I first went into journalism, it was, you kind of had a little path. You either got lucky and started a big paper right out of college, and I had a chance to do that and didn't do it and ended up doing the small paper route. Got lucky to get back to my hometown at a fairly young age and was able to stick around it for three decades. Um, so I feel like I'm kind of the last of a breed, to be quite frank. I got lucky. Um, but man, I, 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 I would, if I had advice for something, I'd, I'd do something else and do this on the side. And then hopefully, I mean, you can make some good money on the side. It's a hell, it's a hell of a side gig. I love doing stuff on the side with it anymore. Yeah, it's, um, I was obviously in that next group where everything kind of crumbled and yep. you no longer wanted to work for those institution places like the newspapers and, and stuff like that. And that was a, a wake up call for me because obviously I always wanted to get to the inquire and then I got to the inquire and was like, this is a dumpster fire. I do not want to be here at all. This is a terrible idea. Um, so I think, you know, the, the biggest thing I would say is do not set out to work for one of those types of places because the future of it is 
making it with as little overhead as possible, Correct. making content, but with one man bands. Um, and the biggest thing from my perspective would be don't set out to work for one of those institution places, but at the same time, make sure you're finding ways to make contacts with everybody in town who works in the media, who works for the sports teams, all of those contacts will be the keys still, but you just don't necessarily have to work for those people or work with those people. That's good. So um, I think that the biggest thing is you don't want to piss people off early on uh, because you still will need them. And the tendency right now is you can get a following on social media. If you do it the right way, you find your niche, you make some content, but you can also piss people. The tendency is then if you get the big following right away to just say, screw it, I don't need any of these people that are already doing it. And you cast them aside and you find out when you're really trying to make money, uh, you might want that person that has a big <laughs> following on your podcast, or you might, that person might be able to introduce you to 10 other people that'll open up the door for you for what you actually want to do or who you actually need to help you. Um, so those are the two biggest things for me is to find your niche, work it on your own. Don't worry about working for uh, a newspaper or a TV station or anything like that. At the same time, make all the contacts at those places that you can. And make sure you do something else for a living on top of it. Yeah, and, and, and don't do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, Rick, enjoy it as always. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week. We've had a lot of content uh, that we thought we were going to dry up on, and we've had, what, 90-minute podcasts the last couple yeah, of weeks. Yeah, I, I look so. forward to it every week. Yep, absolutely. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Um, even though you're 67 miles away from me and, and we're staying far apart, it sounds like we're close together. So here we go. I enjoy it. All right, for Rick Roy, I'm Richard Skinner. Thanks for being with us. The Skinny Podcast, the weekly potpourri edition.